grad school. I'm Kate. I'm Dustin. And we're here. We're here today with Erin Wong, who is a student at UIUC. She is in the same cohort as Dustin. Um, they're lab twins, and so she's here to talk to us today about mentorship and teaching. Um, and Erin, we're really excited to have you on. Thanks for having me. And it's especially fun because I'm trying to be official in our opening introduction while also just, we're always very casual. And yeah. so Excellent. I just hope my professionalism really shines through here. We're not professionals. Um, so to start with, uh, we're just going to kind of do updates and we can do, I think maybe what makes the most sense is we'll start, we'll do a chronological update uh, for how grad school progresses. So I got an update today from our yeah, yesterday from someone who's applying to PhD programs right now. And so I don't know about you guys, but uh, I didn't have available info sessions for PhD programs um, provided by like different schools. Is that something that you guys experienced? No. I have no, no idea what that would. Yeah, no, not at all. So I've seen a few things on Twitter about providing it's kind of a, a lot of it feels like a uh, not feels like, but is actively a diversity initiative, um, but it's open to everyone, but um, they're particularly looking for underrepresented groups. So I know someone who attended one uh, and she texted me yesterday with, this may be a hot take for you can grad school. I was like, yes. This is our, our new segment, our new segment, hot takes. Breaking news. I really want this to happen. Um, in my first job out of grad or out of undergrad, we used to say hot goss and we'd be like hot goss level there. We had no real levels. but um, Perfect. So what level is this, Kate? Uh, hot take level 10. Yeah, uh, it's more. It's actually we don't know the scale. Two. Yeah, it's out of 100. So, yeah, if you have any hot goss or hot takes, send them our way. Yeah, by the time this episode comes out, I, it'll be like two weeks to go uh, before a lot of people are submitting their um, PhD applications. So uh, just a quick reminder, like, you can do this. Uh, it's a crappy time of year, but when it's over, it's over. Um, and then, you know, I, I think the best part, I expected more of a feeling of relief once I got my applications in. So it was less... Uh, it took like a few weeks to like settle after I got those in. Um, and I feel like this is true for everything. Like it's taken a few days since I turned in my NSF for me to be like, mm -hmm. okay, I feel better. This is no longer on my plate, but like that, the negative feelings will go away. <laughs> and it's, I think with like all applications is a process that seems designed to make you feel like you haven't done enough. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's a good reminder that you've gotten to where you are because you have done enough um, and you're doing a cool and brave thing and putting yourself out there. And it's much easier to be on the other side of the table judging people. And so to even like put yourself out there and apply is pretty awesome. So that's how I'm trying to approach my, I just submitted my NSF this Tuesday. Um, and it's been a process that like the idea started generating this summer and that was really exciting. And then it finally kind of came together in the last couple of weeks slash days. Um, and last week, I think when Dustin and I were talking in our gloom and doom episode, uh, <laughs> I was like, every day I stray further from God's light, every day I stray further from a complete research statement, but it actually came together in a way that I'm really proud of. Um, and yeah, I think the best thing you can do is like put together something that you'd be proud of. Um, and so I feel good about that, but, uh, Dustin and Aaron, so for our non- clinical listeners in clinical psych you have to apply for an internship before you can do your postdoc or your postgraduate school whatever um before, before you even get they give you a phd you have to do this <laughs> yeah which i just it's wild so you not only you have to move somewhere usually for a year and they don't pay for your moving fees and they pay you maybe only slightly a little more than you were making as a graduate student so uh and you have to apply for it uh <laughs> and for the privilege. You, have to, you have to pay to apply for that just like with grad school yes so tell me a little bit uh as much as you're comfortable without screaming uh how that's been going and like updates on that 
Justin, do you want to go first? I, I can go first because I have been uh, successful in avoiding it as much as possible, which is not good, mm. uh, which means that I'll just have a lot more work to do. I think the thing that is most frustrating is although there is this nice like common app place where you can put everything it's like not never the complete picture and there's always all these like little pieces that you have to find and it just feels so disparate and and then at the same time you're like trying to reflect on your entire time in grad school and you're like i haven't done anything nobody wants me <laughs> um yeah it's not it's not true but it's easy to to think those things um so it's it's just like a weird a weird thing to be doing yeah and just like writing in a different way of these essays and trying to get all these different pieces together um just to send off into the void i don't know aaron you you've been doing a great job at keeping up with like the deadlines that you wanted to have and at least it seems like that <laughs> how <laughs> would you giving that outward appearance um and dustin and i are also having like kind of different experiences applying to interns because yeah. you're like geographically limited in your mm -hmm. application and i am not so i think that's like an important difference in what the process looks like so for me it's been pretty reminiscent of grad school applications um, especially like you mentioned, Dustin, the kind of writing you have to do to write the essays, like there's a personal statement and all through grad school, I've gotten so used to like writing in such a way that it's you know, like scientific writing. It's hard to get back into writing about like, who am I? <laughs> what's, you know, what's my deal? So that was challenging. Um, but it's also exciting because I'm looking forward to like the new training opportunities and stuff like that. If, you know, fingers crossed, I match somewhere and um, have an internship next year. So cautiously optimistic, but quite stressed at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think, I don't know, I was thinking about this because I had to pull together a personal statement for my NSF. And I had these like mixed feelings about it because I think every time I write a personal statement, I feel like I learn a little bit of myself about myself along the way because like it's forced self-reflection which is kind of cool but like also there's this kind of way that you have to mine deeply personal experiences and package them in the right way in order to appeal to people that I find a little like offensive because in like what other career do you have to convince someone that like they need to accept you for a job because of these deeply personal reasons um and like, I mean, not like deeply personal is also like strategic, right? Because you have to find the right way. You can't be too person, like you can't be too personal for your personal statement. Exactly. Uh, it's such a hard balance. And like, I feel like, and I'm saying this as someone who, again, like I actually really enjoy writing it because it's helpful for me. And like, it really like, I remember like my personal statement for grad school and now for NSF it felt like, oh, wow, all of my experiences like beautifully weave together. But then I had this other like reflection where I was like, not really, uh, because I applied out of undergrad and didn't get in. And so I was like, well, I guess I'll go to Boston. Like I have failed. And so this is my backup. And it turned into a good experience that led to like my overall research plan, but mm -hmm. also like my original like I, like I'm so grateful I was just telling um, my boyfriend that like I like am so grateful for Illinois because I have so many people that I'm close to from Illinois and I that's just like so meaningful to me but when I moved to Illinois it initially felt like this kind of like low point potentially in my career and like this kind of um, last ditch effort for like being in this great lab um, but I lost some like faith in the like research process before then mm -hmm. and so like you like stitch these things together into your personal statement. Um, but it's, it's a little like devoid of reality in some ways. Um, but, uh, yeah, I like your point though, Erin, that it is kind of like, I mean, I'm never going to apply to internship kind of yeah. thank God, <laughs> but like, I think all of these like application periods are like inflection points. Um, they kind of accompany the same thing where you're like, there's, this unfortunate amount of like self-doubt involved and um 
putting in it's just like a massive period of stress and I hope we all can uh, once this is over come to love fall again (laughs) (laughs) like falls are always like the stressful application season yeah Yeah, or post I mean uh, and then there's postdoc but um yeah I appreciate your sharing those and I know it's also hard to talk about it when you're in the midst of it so maybe we can (laughs) have you back on Aaron after you guys are done um, and talk about what you learned. Maybe like well, in a distant, like in the spring, once it's like, once the like sheer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. So uh, what we're going to talk about today is um, mentorship and teaching. And um, I feel like when Dustin and I started, you can grad school, like the Zooms and the, the podcast, I've like really wanted to talk about this with both of you guys, because you both are like, to me, like fantastic mentors. And my, I, I would have to ask the students. Um, but like, my impression is that you're also very good teachers, unless you've just been putting up a fantastic friend and your <laughs> students hate you. Um, but I, if I remember correctly, you both got great scores for your teaching evaluations, which are also an inherently flawed system. We'll talk about it. (laughs) But um, I kind of want to talk about like how you first entered teaching. We'll start with teaching, then we'll go into mentorship, but um, how you became great teachers and like what you learned along the way. So um, my first question is like, what were your first experiences with teaching? Like, how did you get your feet wet or foot in the door with your first teaching experiences? So my first experience with teaching was actually before I was a grad student because I was doing um, a post back at UW-Madison, where I did my undergrad, and they were recruiting recent graduates as TAs for the experimental psychology course because there are a ton of lab sections for it, Um, and for whatever reason, they didn't have enough grad students to fill all of the TA positions, so I taught two of the lab sections of experimental psych. And that was pretty intense because it's like a 50% TA position and you were teaching a lot of really basic statistics and writing, like scientific writing skills. Um, And so that was a lot of work, but I actually really enjoyed it, which was really surprising to me. I did not go into it thinking like, this is going to be a good experience. Um, It was more like, oh, this is a a relevant thing I could do (laughs) during my post-bac period. And I found out that I really enjoyed it. And I did that for a year. And then after that, when I started grad school at University of Denver, I was a TA for the human sexuality course, which was also interesting because that wasn't a class I had ever taken as an undergrad. So I was like kind of excited to TA for it because I was like, oh, I wish I had gotten to take this. And also I'm not coming into it with any particular expertise. I was more of a great (laughs) TA for that. I wasn't an instructor. Um, So that was a less intense experience. And then I was in grad school at UIUC. I was an instructor for the psychopathology and problems in living course for a semester. So for that course, you have two sections of about 45 students each, I think so like 90 students total. Um, and I was really nervous about that. I really, really dislike public speaking. It makes me really nervous. But once I kind of settled in. I really, really enjoyed that too. Um, I really like teaching and didn't, um, was, am surprised <laughs> by that. I did not expect to like teaching. It's funny that you say you're not, like you are scared of public speaking because I just think like whatever I, I don't know, it surprises me because you're so good at it in my impression and like. My internal uh, experience is just chaos <laughs> when <laughs> I have to do public speaking. <laughs> I'm just so scared of it. <laughs> Well, we all know someone who has expressed the fact that they black out while they public speak, which I find terrifying. Um, (laughs) And also, uh, oh, wait, no, I forgot my question, Dustin. (laughs) (laughs) I think my experience with teaching and and things like that go back to coaching. And I was a a coach for kids hockey, and I really enjoyed that. Um, And just like teaching new skills and developing and Um, and then similarly, when I came to graduate school, like I, I was a TA for the 
then abnormal psychology at DU. And I was, it was like a part grading TA. I also led some uh, review sections and then was able to give a couple lectures as well. So that was very nerve wracking. And, um, but I really enjoyed talking about the, the work that I was doing and, and things like that. And then similarly to Aaron, uh, I was lucky enough to teach the semester after Aaron. So I got all of her notes and everything, <laughs> and that made it way easier for me um, to actually teach that course. And I, I really enjoyed it. It was really great to connect with the students and uh, realize what my knowledge was, which I think in grad school is another thing that you don't often realize because it feels like such a slow process that you you do know a lot about these things and uh it's it can be a challenge to take what you know and then translate it to other people and i think that's what's really exciting to see them start to understand these things too that's what i was going to ask about because like it's uh i have a very limited teaching experience and i'll teach for the first time next year probably um under like a ta ship but um i think i volunteered to like present on like my uh on like different programs or something for both of your classes or like a quick like I only spoke for like 15 minutes total but it was very intimidating because they're so quiet and they're just staring at you and it's like not very clear if they're connecting if you don't have like a relationship with them and I felt the same way and like I did like something akin to teaching but not really um with like leading lab RAs Mm -hmm. when we like I talked them through it section like a a paper or like a something like mediation versus moderation on a pizza box and like I just felt like I had no training and I was just like I don't know if I'm connecting with them I don't know if they're learning anything I don't know how to scaffold what I know and how I got here Mm -hmm. and I also feel like a crazy person and so like what was your like training to like start teaching um I I know grad programs have various uh or lacks, lack of teaching philosophy. So how did you guys adjust? Well, at DU, we didn't get anything, right? Did you get anything, Erin? No. And then didn't we attend the same thing at UIUC? Yeah, there was kind of like a seminar for instructors of the particular course we were teaching. Wasn't there, there was like the, we had to go to oh, anybody yeah. who was a TA, right? For the oh, whole university. Yes, there is a university-wide requirement for people to complete this. It was like a maybe two-day training course or something like that in, I, I don't know, like teaching methods, basic principles of teaching. But like people study that for their entire careers. Like you could get a yeah. PhD in education. So it's, I don't think, I mean, I appreciate that the university makes an effort to give you, you know, some background in like pedagogy I guess but also there's no way you could learn how to be a teacher in two days it's a massive skill set yeah yeah I mean like the rewards and the incentives aren't really there for good teaching which I find kind of wild um and like my sister just completed her master's in education and yeah, like one of the things she expressed when she first started her um, coursework is she had been teaching for like a year before and like doing some some sort of teaching program before. And she was like, oh, my God, like what like what was I doing before like this experience? Yeah. And she already learned so much by her experience. So like what uh, like how how did you learn like on the day to day job? Like and what was it like in the first like month and two months where you were like getting mixed, maybe like mixed feedback because the students stare at you or they're like, have their laptops open and they're not paying attention. Yeah. Like, how was that? Um, One thing that I did take away from the, um, I don't know what you call it, the workshop, I guess, that all TAs and instructors had to do that I had kind of like a similar moment to your sister, like, oh my gosh, I did this totally wrong before was um, they talked in one of the workshops I went to giving feedback on writing and the course that Dustin and I taught is like a fairly writing intensive course. Um, and they talked about the importance of having like one or two major takeaway points that you want the students to get from your feedback and that there's a tendency to like really overload students with feedback 
And I was like, oh, I definitely did that when I taught before because I was like, I want to help you. Like, here's all my thoughts about ways you could improve this essay. And that's overwhelming and that's not helpful to students. Um, so that was one thing that I kind of like was aware of as I went into teaching. Um, and then the other thing that I did was I, cause it is really hard to gauge how you're doing. Um, because I think especially in courses, I mean, 45 students isn't like a huge course, but it's not like a small discussion either. Um, and there were a couple students that I could like count on to be really engaged and like, oh, if I look at them, I can tell like, oh, you're really into this or whatever. But there's also people, you know, actively sleeping. So I solicited feedback pretty regularly. So a couple weeks into the semester, I sent out um, like a Google form that I asked them to fill out, just asking some really basic questions. Like, how is the pace? Am I going too fast through the slides? Because I would ask for that kind of feedback really regularly. Like, do you need more time? And it would just be like, dead faces. So I'm like, all right, <laughs> I'm gonna go on. Um, and at the same time, I totally understand because I was never one to speak up in classes that were bigger than like a small discussion. So I complain about that and also would have definitely been one of the like quiet students. So no, I think back to myself and like if a professor had asked in like all any of my lecture classes would be like, Oh, is this like too fast? They'd be like, I'm not gonna tell you. Like, like yes. Solicit feedback in other ways, which was pretty helpful. Um, and also not helpful at all, because I remember it was like a very even split between like a third of people saying like way too fast, a third of people saying like just right, and a third of people being like too slow. <laughs> a third of you will be disappointed. Yeah. Two thirds of you will be Two disappointed. <laughs> Yeah, I Math think it was <laughs> it was one of those things that like you always hear about instructors like teaching to the middle or like trying to appease to certain groups. And you can easily see like, Aaron, as you're talking, there's like particular students that are coming up in my head of like, yeah, I could look to them or I could look to them and be like, no, I know you're always going to be checked out. You're sitting in this seat, like always lounged back um, and you start noticing those groupings within each section and then it can be really helpful to to gauge that but it does take a a good like few sessions in order to to feel like you have a good read of the room um yeah i think the trying to integrate like eye clickers were a big thing in this section uh and we were asked to to use them more regularly so i started you trying to use like that feedback option in there of like partway through checking in and seeing like, how do you feel like the pace is so that it could still remain anonymous to a certain degree. And like, I could then adjust there thereafter. Um, but yeah, it's like, a, you know how you learn and that's not how everybody learns and like mm -hmm. trying out new things or trying to offer that scaffolding for people can be really tricky and nobody tells you how to do it. Yeah, no, like another important question I think a lot about, how did you like demonstrate that you were like a cool teacher? Like, did you sit on the desk? Like, <laughs> I stood up and we did the, oh, captain, my captain. That's what I was <laughs> <laughs> did you say comments that were like meant to appeal to them? Like, yeah, I know. Like all I want to do today is just like watch TikToks and like vape. And then they're like, yeah, that's a cool teacher. I know about TikTok yet the semester that I was teaching. I, I don't think I did either. My biggest fear is that I'll say something that someone will record for a TikTok and I'll go viral like for the wrong thing. <laughs> yeah. Like that's also my big fear with like Zoom meetings. I'm like, oh God, like I I make such distinct like I have very emotionally reactive face. And so, like, I worry that someday I'll be teaching and they'll be like, our teacher reacts to gross questions with extreme disgust. Like, <laughs> like, and then it's going to just. I think being, having clinical experience helps for that. Because if a client says something and you're like, oh, this, you, you can't show that to them. That's true. In your face. <laughs> you're like, oh, God, that's not normal. Yeah. I also think like sometimes like reflecting back on my own learning like I like the point that's like 
you learn in a specific way, but like things that I found consistent in college, like uh, a lot of times when people are historicizing the field of psychology, they weren't explicit in saying what theories had been disproven or had fallen to the wayside. And so that was like a huge gap for me where I was like, oh, wait, like I kind of assumed that was wrong, but I don't know for sure. Um, And so like learning from that. um, I also something I think a lot about because I don't think I was an amazing teacher for my like lab RAs all the time um, is that I think I had trouble uh, converting enthusiasm towards excitement for the learners as well. Mm-hmm. Like I think the best teachers I had were like really excited about the material and they taught in a way that made you excited, like whether it was an area of original interest for you or not. So like, how did you, how did, was that something you thought about? Like, is that something you tried to like incorporate? That was something. I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I just always think of Chip. Oh yeah. yeah our- professor in our first year of grad school. And okay, so it's actually kind of relevant to what I was going to say, because I was concerned when I was teaching, because I'm not like a, like, I think I express enthusiasm. I'm not like a robot, but I'm not like, I don't have like camp counselor energy, you know, I don't have that like, high level, like theatrical enthusiasm that I think some students really enjoy from their professors. Like, I don't think I'm entertaining in that way. But then this one professor who Dustin and I both loved is also definitely not camp counselor energy. Like, I don't know how to describe the energy he does have, but it certainly wouldn't be that. So I was worried that because I don't have that like super bubbly, you know, peppy energy that everyone was going to find me really boring. And like, to be honest, some students probably did. And to a certain extent, there was probably nothing I could do about that. But I think, I don't know, the way I do express excitement, I think comes across as genuine to me. And it would have come across as weird and fake if I tried to like convey some kind of, um, I don't know. Be like disturbing. Yeah, it would be weird. Uh, although I No, I have like the opposite problem. I have like camp counselor energy pretty easily. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to lose substance. I think that works really well for teaching though. And I was worried that that was going to be like a barrier to me because I'm just like, well, this material is really exciting. Like, why do I have to make it more exciting? It's just such a nerdy way to think. No, and we, Dustin and I have talked about this a lot, but when I scared the RAs with my excitement about puberty, uh, <laughs> I don't know, I like slammed my hands on the table and I was like, isn't that exciting? And they just were like scared. It's <laughs> like... I don't think I've converted anyone into a puberty researcher. So like that, I think I have the opposite concern where I'm like, I think I just, there's, you can like put the gas pedal too far down on that too. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's like, yeah, what Aaron was saying is how do you convey your excitement and your enthusiasm for things? And like the things that when I, I tried bringing in like any sort of stats bits, which is not something that, needed to be in the course but i was really excited about um and i don't know if i don't know how that was conveyed um but all in all it's like what are you what is the goal of your teaching is it just to have the most amount of students understand the material or do you want to do that and then i also wanted to try to show people what the field was like in being like a student or a psychologist and how these things that we're learning about within the DSM or how it's being presented, how those actually come out in real life and how we assess for them or what we do with that in a treatment context. So that for those who were interested, it would be like a little bit extra and then would want them to investigate into our field a little bit more. And I think that can be useful for some students and for others, it's like, look at this nerd, like (laughs) calm down. I just need to be in the back on my laptop and get my other homework done for another class. And that's okay. Yeah, I think there's like two points, right? Like it's like, you wanna leave breadcrumbs for the people who, the like little bird learners who are hungry for more. Um, <laughs> little bird <but> learners. I, <laughs> I don't know, I was just coming up with it on the spot. And then that's I was camp, like, oh, that's, that's very kind of adorable. My kids were, my kids that I coached on the track team were like, I didn't think I was that positive 
like I was like I'm not that positive I feel like I'm pretty like dry and sardonic like that is not how I come across to anyone and I did not realize (laughs) that until they were like you're like so positive it's like aggressively positive (laughs) I was like all right but yeah it's like also understand I think like one of the things I in my return to being a student is like oh yeah I want to have the understanding that some weeks some students are overextended and they need Mm -hmm. to use class time for something different and like that's the way where I sometimes think like uh the further away from school you get the more removed you get from that kind of empathy where you're like ah like yeah like they have other things going on um but I also wanted to talk about some less like style related or like learning how to teach but like how how did you get organized like how, you had to come up with like course materials or you had to steal Aaron's materials um <laughs> but you had to like come yeah. up with like a, a course like how was that how was that given to you and like how did you how did you get organized and like adjust for the semester with like meeting the students where they're at and getting all of the tests and quizzes on time? So I followed a schedule from, we had, we were lucky to get a lot of materials from students who had grad students who taught this course in the past to use as kind of templates. So like their syllabus, their slides. So I used that as a guideline and, um, I think if I were to teach the course a second time, it would have gone a lot more smoothly because as I was going along, I was certainly like, oh, I would, now that I have this knowledge about how long this section took, for example, I would not have spaced out like the quizzes in this way. So unfortunately, I didn't really get a chance to like implement what I learned from um, the first time around. And I think like, whenever you teach like the first time you're teaching a new course for that reason, it takes a lot more time because also I was using, I had some slides to use as templates from previous students, but there were things I wanted to change about them. Um, And so for each lecture, there was a lot of prep work that went into developing the slides. And then because I, especially at first was a very anxious public speaker, I would put copious notes in the presenter view for myself because I was like I'm gonna black out and forget everything um that's what I would be worried about (laughs) yeah so I did that um and then I just tried to be flexible as things like came up as we were going along like I remember there being a time in the semester where I realized like wow these quizzes the way they're scheduled are really really close together in a way that's not going to make sense so I would just like change them and no student is going to get mad about you being like this quiz is going to be in two weeks from now instead of next week oh my god yeah um, but in the at the end of the day all of the sections that are being taught at that time will take the same exam um, so it was like making sure that you were able to prep them enough for the exam and then also, if you wanted to leave those those breadcrumbs, like where you wanted to spend more time, you could. Um, so like I was able to put in, I think both Aaron and I put in some more like child focused things yeah. <laughs> towards the end, which I would have loved to do more of. Um, and then like I was able to talk a little bit more about clinical experiences working with youth with trauma. So like going through a what treatment looks like for trauma in kids, which I thought was really cool. Um, but not something that they were then like quizzed or tested on. So um, I think that flexibility, having that structure, again, thinking like, if I were a student, how would this make sense to me? And would I be like, why am I getting all these emails randomly about slides being changed? Or just have like an organized compass site where you can submit things and it's easy. So it's like part of thinking about the user experience, which is different than you just like giving a a talk or a lecture at a conference. Um, It's like trying to prepare your students to be as successful as they can be. And again, like what is the outcome you want? Yeah, it's like sometimes wonder if we're not doing enough, like if education doesn't do enough scaffolding, um, even like within course and like through the years. But I like your focus on like the user experience. I always got I, I don't know. I always felt like a little salty about the like jokes that was like it's in the syllabus, uh, or like people complaining about their students not reading the syllabus. I'm like, I mean, like when I'm handed a single spaced four page document with like I don't know thirty percent, thirty to fifty percent of it is not applicable to me, and like it will make no difference. Um, 
it's like less realistic like and syllabus syllabi matter um and now like as a grad student I use a my like each class syllabus is like really important to me and I use it much more Mm -hmm. than I did in undergrad but like that's because like I I have that skill now or like it's something but no one never read the syllabus in undergrad (laughs) and so like focusing on the user experience is something I like appreciate that yeah I tried to I think I feel like that's a similar annoyance I share with where people get I mean like on one hand I'm like yeah I get it you have this information in the syllabus and also like it's not that hard for me to make things easier for students so I would like at the beginning of each lecture I would just have a slide about like upcoming due dates so it would just be like here's what you have to turn in this week and next week here's the date of the next quiz or like be aware that this is happening because I don't know everyone can use a reminder (laughs) and if they can't fine if they're on top of it great they can ignore this slide well we expect things out of students that you don't expect from professionals always where it's like you need a reminder when the deadline is or you have less you have four different things that are all like have different timelines whereas like professionally usually like it's like smaller or it's all related in some way and so I think I just like that always kind of rubs me the wrong way um, so I want to move on to switch to talking about mentorship. So um, to just like, as the kids would say, to gas you guys up a little bit. Um, I, like Is that good? That, That's good, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It sounds like it could go either way. Uh, you both have been like really, really good mentors to me. Um, Thank you. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but like. <laughs> oh, sorry. Now we can't yeah, talk. We're not done. <laughs> Yeah, just like, just take it. Uh, So like, but what I think is kind of cool is like, you know, like I came into my lab experience with both of you and like, you know, like pretty much all of the grad students served in some sort of mentorship role for me. And it just like, it made such a difference, like short term and like long term, it has continued to make a difference. And what was kind of phenomenal is you all served as like different kind of mentors to me. And Mm -hmm. Uh, I think a lot of times we talk about a single mentor um, when really it's like a constellation of mentors who help get you where you need to go. Um, But I've also had like people who are technically supposed to be a mentor who are, do not do a great job of filling that role. Um, I think we've all had like the mix. So I wanted to talk to you guys about both your own experiences with mentors um, as well as like how you've, become such great mentors uh from my experience and if anyone has had a bad experience with these guys as mentors you know at the at can grad let us know <laughs> hate send hate mail too <laughs> um i think mentorship is super important to me because i also had really great mentors as an undergrad um especially among grad students and postdocs who in the lab i was working in like provided me with a lot of support um and i certainly wouldn't have had like the skills on my own to get into grad school without the support of those mentors. So I feel like part of being a grad student that is like paying it forward because that's how I got to where I am. And so it's like only fair that I, you know, help people along the way as well because I got that support from other people. Um, So yeah, it's something that's really important to me. Yeah, I agree. I think it's shout out to old members of the gem lab that yeah. I wouldn't, I definitely wouldn't be here. I know they're all listening. Uh, everyone. <laughs> you, I know. <laughs> um, maybe Hannah is, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, I definitely, I know I wouldn't be here without that support. Uh, and I, I see it as essential to the work that we do. And I, I think that transition of knowledge is, is, completely necessary and people view it differently and have different values. But I want to be able to make, to have you succeed in whatever way possible. So like Aaron was saying, yeah, paying it forward and trying to do a better job. Um, then, I mean, I, I wouldn't say I received a bad job. I thought it was really great, but just trying to tailor it to each individual as much as possible. I think that goes a long way to in supporting either certain areas that they want to improve on or just like 
teach and support in in a way that is best for them because yeah what we're doing is really difficult and it doesn't need to be so what are some supports thinking again about that user experience like we're users in a graduate program um and what can be helpful for you in preparing for future things yeah uh something i think about a lot is like i the people who've mentored me it's kind of been accidental or like I don't like I there are some cases where I've like sought out mentors but like I think there's also like kind of a responsibility towards finding your mentee like finding someone who needs that help and either providing it for them or finding them someone who like can mentor them because like I think what was like magical about like I think the lab culture of the gem and then Yeti lab has been phenomenal and that it's a very pay it forward and be, be the person you like want you are glad you had or wish you had um and so like what what are other qualities this is kind of like a generic question but like um what are some like other qualities you think are important for like a mentor to have or that you've tried to cultivate in yourself for your mentees well, that's a good question mm-hmm. um one I don't know what the name of this quality is but um one thing i've tried to be aware of is figuring out what the right balance is between like providing support and challenging people that you're mentoring like and i'm thinking about this more in like a like an academic mentoring role um so for example yeah i like that sorry yeah no so i was just thinking like last semester i mentored talia or for the several past semesters i mentored talia on her honors thesis which was like the easiest mentoring role ever because she's just like phenomenal. But um, I would think about, you know, what's um, in giving feedback on writing, for example, what's the amount that I should give her like really clear, explicit, like write this instead of this versus like, here's the general idea that of like where I'm thinking this needs to go in. And like, I think you should work through how to get there. Um, so yeah, I don't know what the word for that is, but figuring out what the right balance is between like being really supportive and also like, it's not helpful when a mentor just like does your work for you. So helping them like grow because you see their abilities. No, I love that. Like, cause it is like letting them struggle for a certain amount of time or like building a relationship where they can ask for help when they need a dead end. Or if they think it's a dead end, sometimes being like, no, you need to push a little harder. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I forgot about all those R groups that I did too. Yeah. Like teaching and mentoring and things like that, that it is, I think that is a, a key balance that you need and the flexibility in being able to say, like, think, oh, well, at this part, you need more direct feedback. Maybe in a couple of weeks, it'll be flipped. And then being able to kind of switch back uh to that to to challenge i think is where people are able to grow but if you challenge too much too often or yeah then it, it it's just gonna be overwhelming and then they're not gonna want to continue um so i think that and communication as with a lot of things that we do like making sure that you're very clear in what you're trying to ask of them uh and that they're clear with you as well that it's a, a two-way street for this and that you're developing this relationship um to help them grow and you as well like like kate what you were saying you always reflect on yourself when you write your personal statements that you're able to see like oh here's an area that i wanted to learn more and now we're both able to do this yeah i like that point uh particularly i like i mean i like all of your points um (laughs) this is why you guys i just like i just like one (laughs) shut the rest of them down the rest of them, um, my like main mentoring experience in the last like two years has been through coaching. Um, and like the communication piece, I think uh, part of this is because I talked to my sister who's on the other side and like being a mentee towards my um, now graduate school advisor is sometimes I would feel like a little hesitant to reach out as a mentee, uh, mm-hmm. like to my mentor where I was like, I don't want to bother them. Yeah. And then I tried to take that as like a mentor to the kids I coach and like checking in with them and being like, I love it when people check in with me. It like feels like I feel like valued and like cared for and that like really matters to me. So, but like from a 
mentor view, sometimes you're like, well, I don't want to bother my mentee or like, like feel like I'm on like, like overly uh, helicoptering them. Um, But I think part of it is like creating a space where like you reach out to them and give them the opportunity to ask for help. Um, And I was like really touched last weekend when someone reached out to me to ask for my advice on something. And I feel like a big, I know, I was like, she was asking me about work-life balance and I was like, take a nap. She's like, I'm working at like lower productivity and I'm trying to decide whether I should. Um, She's like a freshman in college. And she's like, I'm trying to like, I'm trying to decide whether I should just work through it. Or if I should take the L and like rest, I was like, everything's going to be so much more manageable if you take a break. And yeah, I was just like, I was like so touched that she reached out and I was like, but like also like, that's like a building thing where like every couple of weeks I'll send her a text and be like, Hey, I just wanted to check in and see how you were doing. So she got the idea that I wanted to hear from her. That's awesome. Yeah, that is. So yeah. And like along those lines, so you're also mentees. um, I, the word mentee always sounds weird to me. Um, it, it sounds is. like manatee. Um, <laughs> I wish I was a manatee. That would be I would, honestly, so if it weren't for all the motorboats <laughs> killing manatees, then like it'd be a pretty sweet life. Uh, the gentle sea cow. Fun fact: I hope my mom's never going to listen to this podcast. My mom bought my sister and I manatee earrings, and can I just say that those are the ugliest kinds of earrings you could ever get in your entire life my sister got dangling ones and i got manatee stud earrings wow, that <laughs> little, like, just like chunks of like fake silver um but yeah uh back to the questions um so how have you found like mentors in your life and what do you look for in finding mentors because like i think part of it is very formalized and when you apply to your pi and you guys also followed your PI from one institution to another, um, <laughs> just like wild to me. Um, it's also one of the reasons like I wanted to work in the lab um, because it seemed like you guys were getting good mentorship. Um, mm-hmm. And if you were willing to move from like Denver to central Illinois, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, there must be something to this, this work or this. Yeah. Uh, so like, what do you look for in a mentor and how have you found mentors along the way? Um, I think most of my, like the people I would consider mentors are, I mean, obviously like our, our graduate mentor is like a very formalized mentor person. Um, and then through our program, we also have an academic advisor who's like another kind of formalized mentor But other than that, for a while, I was under the impression that like, you have to have a conversation with someone where you explicitly ask them to be your mentor. And I was like, that's so awkward. I'm never going to do that. And that's probably just a me thing. And that's probably a totally fine conversation to have. But the rest of the people that I consider to be mentors, like, and who would probably say that they mentor me, like, I did not ever have that conversation with them. Because that's, I, I, I don't know, I just... That didn't seem organic to me. <laughs> no, I can't remember who it would be, but I have this vague memory of me asking, like, asking someone to be my mentor, and that's just like so awkward to be like, "Can I well, ask?" Totally. But if someone asked me that, I'd be like thrilled. I'd be like, yeah. "Oh my gosh, I'm touched." Yes, I've gotten the advice to do that before, but like, it just has never like felt to me like natural to do. Yeah, so I just didn't, but it's been okay. Like that has not stood in the way of me getting mentorship. Um, and I think the things I look for in mentors are different depending on like what I want them to mentor me in or whether, you know, like formal or informal. So for example, mm-hmm. I look to people who I think have like really good work-life balance or who have like raised a family while also being a psychologist or like an academic um, it's like one kind of mentor. So I don't think um, that it's necessary to have one person who is like, and for some people, this might work out that they really do have one person who's their mentor in all things. But for me, I found it more helpful to like, spread out the different things I need mentorship in across multiple different individuals. Yeah, it reminds me of like dating. Um, not <laughs> Not like <laughs> entirely, uh, because you should have appropriate boundaries your with your mentor. Uh, <laughs> but in the sense that, so I read this thing about um, 
I mean, there's a gendered aspect to it. So men and women have different expectations for a relationship because women tend to have um, multiple people to serve different roles in their social, for their like social needs. Yeah. Um, and I think that's very uh, important for having different mentors to meet different needs as far as like your own personal or professional mentorship. Um, like, I think if you are a woman or if you are a person of color, like seeing someone who's been through an experience that feels like it might speak to your own could be incredibly valuable. And as a, like, as a woman, like that has been important to me. Um, or I would imagine Justin, like talking to people who have families and are making like that balance and have daughters who have just learned the alphabet, like that could be an essential. <laughs> She's crushing it. <laughs> yeah. So we'll talk about future directions now. Thank you guys both for your like thoughts. And um, again, thanks for being great mentors to me. It's made all the difference. Um, so yeah, uh, Justin, do you want to go first for future directions? I started a new series uh, that was suggested to me, and it is called A Darker Shade of Magic by V.E. Schwab. Um, it's a really, so far, really interesting book that's about, uh, there are four different Londons, and only certain people can pass between the Londons, and there's like, the worlds have been shut off between them because of transference of magic, and it's just really interesting. So I'm looking forward to seeing how that that goes. It is A Darker Shade of Magic in the Shades of Magic series by V.E. Schwab. Ooh, sounds really good. Erin? I have been um, re-watching all of Schitt's Creek from the beginning because they just added the sixth season to Netflix, and I love it even more the second time around. It's just, it's just... It's so good. So Perfect. good. <laughs> yeah. I watched the sixth season in two days. Yeah. So we were going to watch the sixth season, but then we're like, wait, it's been a while. Let's start it all the way over and watch it all the way through. So that's been making me very happy. I made Mitch cry by playing Simply the Best, the acoustic version for him. He's like such a baby. So sweet. Uh, <laughs> he's so in touch with his emotions. Um, I can't remember <laughs> the name of it. But the new Tana French book that I recommended last week as an update uh, to future directions, it's super good. Um, and I have, I, I mean, I guess I recommend like if your eyes are tired from Zooming all the time, it was really hard for me to not watch TV, but I kind of like forced myself to read a little bit. Um, and so after you watch your recommendations, <laughs> all of Shit's Creek, then you can follow this recommendation which is like it kind of was like a nice brain break because like you have to like fully invest in a book in order like you have to fully like be involved in the book and so it's like a really good meditative kind of thing to do so mm -hmm. um but thank you for joining us for another uh episode of you can grad school Erin. thank you so much for joining us i'm so glad thank you're you here Aaron. for having me and uh we'll be in your feeds next week or two weeks from now depending on how tired and bored we are uh, <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. See ya. The You Can Grad Door is on a vacation. <laughs>